I'd like to share a couple of uh, travel stories with you because traveling is uh, one of the areas of life, at least for me, that tends to bring some of the most interesting, um, delightful, worrisome, fretful realities to life, but mostly funny when you look back on it and and you survive certain things. I had the opportunity uh, several years ago to join several pastors on a a vision trip to Cairo, Egypt, and we were there visiting different ministries and understanding, trying to see what uh, God was doing uh, in that uh, place. And uh, at one point, about, I don't know, day three or so, we sat in a really busy, bustling uh, area of town and uh, sat down at a, ca- a coffee shop to have coffee. And uh, we were about, uh, I think about ten of us total. And we're sitting down and uh, this man comes up holding a piece of cardboard. And uh, he didn't speak my language, I didn't speak his. And someone said, he wants to shine your shoes. And uh, I'm not accustomed to having my shoes shine generally. Um, and so I was like, no thanks. And uh, our American uh, guide who was with us, um, our leader of the group, he says, don't worry. He, he'll take them, he'll take good care of them, and he'll bring them back. And, and he could use the money. I said, well, okay, you convinced me. So here I am. I, I bend down and I untie my shoes and I set them on the piece of cardboard he has and he disappears into the crowd. Now, I had packed really lightly, and so those are the only pair of shoes I had. Now, if he didn't come back, I was really going to be in trouble. And uh, fortunately, he did come back, and I was so grateful and uh, because I could walk without pain, and uh, it, was, it was great. What I was so struck by, or just I was so pleased in just seeing his desire to work and uh, to earn his living in the way that he was able. Uh, but I, it also highlighted for me um, how... To just kind of put in stark contrast that I was a visitor in a, what for me was a strange place. Uh, a couple of days later as we were going, we had a, a rented little uh, van. And we had a, a van driver and, and a government-supplied security guard escort for us. And I don't know why on this particular day, as we were getting off the van, his suit jacket happened to open. Uh, and, you know, the wind kind of breasted open, and I saw hanging from his shoulder was an Uzi-style automatic machine gun. Well, that didn't, <laughs> that didn't help me calm down much at all. So uh, we had happened to pull into a parking lot that was completely empty, and it happened to be a, uh, a museum celebrating, commemorating uh, a famous Egyptian uh, victory in war, and it happened to be on a day when no one else was there. So I see this gun. We get off into an empty parking lot, approaching a building that was completely empty. And did we go to the front door? No, of course not. Uh, he took us around the side of the building. And now my heart's starting to race a little bit because I wondered, hmm, an armed guard supplied to us by the government um, taking us around this <laughs> backside of a vacated building. And I had no idea what to expect. And my honest prayer was, Lord, if this is my last day, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for my life. Uh, not knowing what was going to happen. I, honestly, I, I was picturing all sorts of things. He was going to line us up on the wall. I'm not trying to make light of that, but that really was the, the sense I had. And I was so happy when he pulled a key out of his pocket and unlocked the side door. And we walked in and about an hour-long tour. Uh, so we were the guests of honor. <laughs> uh, welcomed. And uh, as we left... Uh, we were walking up the stairs, and I was trying to be nice and friendly to him. You know, he had this special hardware. And uh, he, he, as we were walking up the stairs, he took and looped his arm into mine, locked his elbow into mine. And I didn't quite know what to make of that. 
but once we got back safely to the van, I was really happy. And my friend said, don't worry, that's a really good sign of friendship uh, for him. And so I was so struck by how and respected so much his, his own pride in his country's accomplishments and the joy that that brought him and in their history. But it also was a stark highlight for me in that moment that I wasn't at home. Right? I was in a strange area around customs and stories that I didn't know, and it just highlighted all of that for me. We talked about last week, as we're beginning to look through the letter that Peter wrote to various groups of Christian believers scattered about uh, what we now know as Turkey, and he begins the letter by describing them as strangers in the world. Strangers in the world. We spent significant time last week trying to unpack what that means. Um, in those, uh, what it means as a Christian to be one who follows Jesus. And uh, even though we live in a certain cultural context right here in the U.S., Many of us were born here in the U.S. We've grown up in this. Others were not. And it really doesn't matter what cultural context you find yourself in because primarily part of what God wants us to understand is that when God adopts us as a son or a daughter into His family, that our primary allegiance now and our citizenship is somewhere else that we are now citizens of heaven, and so we might put our feet in a particular place of geography, and that's important, but our minds and our hearts are somewhere else. So Peter addresses us as strangers in the world. Today's Western culture has been described in many different ways. One person I liked in particular describes it succinctly, spiritually speaking, that it is a blend of secularism and pluralism. Secularism and pluralism. Uh, My eyes were opened about 18 years ago to the fact that people can be born right here in this country and uh, grow up here. There was a woman that I met. She was in her mid-20s. She was born in Portland, Oregon. So born here, grew up as an American, went to public schools. Her parents were immigrants. And as we began to get to know each other, she found out I was a pastor. We began to talk about church and my spiritual life and who is Jesus. And my eyes were open to this fact of the increasingly secularization of our country is that she, we began to talk about things like Easter and she had zero, zero background or understanding, couldn't even link the word Easter to the person of Jesus. I mean, there was just zero background. For me, 18 or so years ago, that was a real eye-opener that um, the points of Christian connections to our culture are diminishing all the time. And we can respond to that with fretting and being, over, being really concerned about it, or we can look at it as an opportunity in a fresh way, with a fresh voice, to give demonstration and to give explanation for the good news of who Jesus is and what God has done through His coming to the earth. Secularization. And pluralization. There were some studies in the last couple of decades about Marine County residents. And um, it won't surprise you to know that many Marine County residents uh, identify themselves with the well-worn adage, I'm uh, spiritual but not religious. I'm spiritual but not religious. We're, we're surrounded by people. Some of you might say that. I'm, I'm spiritual but I'm not 
religious. And that, that's a common uh, mantra around us in this area because there's this growing sense of pluralization in the U.S. and in Western culture. And it's not, not unknown to any of us, but this, these two realities blend together in a way that uh, what also came out of that study was how many people in this county, when they think about Christianity or they think about the church, they think of it more as a religious organization rather than a spiritually vibrant and vital organism. In other words, many people in the county don't see the church or Christian faith in particular as spiritual. They see it as a function, as some sort of other identity, but it has no real impact in a person's life. And that was really shocking to me and many others, that that seems to be the the thought about Christian faith. So again, is it fretting or is this a way of opening up our understanding to the opportunities that God provides to a faith community to be what we are intended to be in part to the world around us? Remember, most of the New Testament are missionary letters written to believers in missionary settings in a first century world of the Roman Empire, not unlike where we live here in the Bay Area and in Marin County, to be on mission with God, engaging the culture around us in ways and the opportunities that God provides and opens for us. Today's message is titled Everyday Community. Community not so much in the sense of our tight-knittedness and the time we spend together, although that's part of it. It's really more about our identity as a community together and uh, why God makes us distinctive and how He goes about doing that. So that's what I want to unpack for us in, in the time we have together, if you're ready to go with me. Shall we go? 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. We're going to read a large chunk here of Scripture. And over the series, there's going to be sometimes we'll come back. So in weeks to come, there's a portion of this that we're going to come back and settle in on a little bit more. And, um, but let's hear what God's Word says, and then we'll, we'll come back. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because... I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. He was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through Him you believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him, so your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. 
For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies. Crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says... See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they we're destined for. So three items that we want to just unpack together in the minutes that we have is under the overarching idea that we have been chosen by God to be a distinctive people, to be a holy people. That means set apart and distinct in a particular quality. We're going to talk and try to answer in part how God makes us distinctive. We're going to try to answer why God makes us distinctive and then looking at love as the key distinctive in the way that Peter rolls this out for us. So number one, we are chosen to be distinctive. So how does God, how does God make us distinctive? God does it through Jesus. All the way back to the second verse of chapter 1. It says... uh, to God's elect, strangers in the world who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. This is a reference back to Exodus. and um, We don't have time this morning at this moment to go back through uh, some of the overarching themes of Exodus. But God called the people to Himself, called The Israelite people, their father, called them to be a distinctive people so that when the world looked at how they lived together, they were intended to see how good God was. And so there was a missional quality to the people of Israel as God formed them. And uh, when they stood there and Moses comes off Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, which was the outline, that which gave instructions for how they were to relate, relate rightly to God, Moses says, now will you follow these instructions and walk with God? And all the people said, you bet we will. And Moses sprinkled them with blood as a sign of the covenant now has been forged and implemented. And so Peter is hearkening back to that imagery, casting the church now in the light of God's people that God now works into the world so that His goodness can be known. And then did you notice in chapter 2 when it describes Jesus as the cornerstone? In ancient buildings, I'm, I'm no architect or a... a, a uh, builder in any way, 
But an ancient builder, uh, what they would do is that you would clear your ground, you'd prepare it for building, and part of the importance of a cornerstone in a building was that it did two things. Number one is it laid the foundation, and number two, it provided the orientation for everything that was to go up around it. So the cornerstone was the fundamental piece in the foundation upon which the building was to be constructed. So if your cornerstone is crooked, the whole foundation is going to be messed up. And the cornerstone served as the orientation so that you knew where to place the walls on either side and to build rightly around them. You see, Jesus and the church is described, individual Christians are described as living stones, alive And the gospel is not less than the individual reality of God working individually with each person, but it's certainly much more than that. And the church is much more than that because God's intent with the church is to take you, individual Christian, and to put you together with other Christians and to join your life as individual living stones, building you up upon the chief cornerstone of Jesus so that together our life becomes this living, spiritual, vital organism, just like the Israelites were supposed to be in the Old Testament, so that when people look at how we live life together as believers, because we're part of a family now, we've been adopted, and as people now look at us, they see the gospel at work. They hear the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, but they also see it in the way we love and interact with one another. The chief cornerstone, the foundation and the orientation is Jesus. His call on your life individually and then His call to place you into a church fellowship and a community that is distinctive in the way that you relate together. That's how God has made us distinctive. Why does He do it? We've hinted at it. We've touched on it some. In verse 15... It says, uh, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as uh, he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Peter will hearken back and point us to different Old Testament passages uh, throughout the Bible. Um, you, uh, anytime you search a web page... And you see hyperlinks, you know, it takes you, you click on the hyperlink and it'll send you off somewhere else. You're looking at uh, auto parts and you want to see about a, a wheel and you click on the wheel and it takes you to another page that describes that. Whatever the, the item is, that's how hyperlinks work. It's intended to take you to another place to give you further information. When Peter inserts, and when the Bible does that, inserts Old Testament scriptures into the New Testament readings that you have, consider them like hyperlinks. And you're encouraged to take time to go back and find them and to hear what the context was and what was God doing at the moment when this was written and why is it now being referenced by the writer in the New Testament and then what does it mean for us today? Part of this, be holy because I am holy, is a reference back to Leviticus. Now, Leviticus is a a bit of an intimidating book of the Bible. In fact, Leviticus probably is not on your top ten lists of books that you might think about opening for your own devotional reading. Am I right? Do you know the book of Leviticus? Um, If you don't, that's probably why. (laughs) Uh, Leviticus, it's a wonderful book. 
but it seems to be just a little unusual in the way it is. But here, here's why it's so important. Because it is describing the way God is creating a new community, right? The Israelites had been redeemed out of captivity in, in Egypt. They had been set free, but not just to go and wander. No, they had been set free so that they could live life with God. God had established a covenant saying, this is how we will live our lives together. And then he lays out in Leviticus, he goes in a deeper way, to describe the distinctive qualities that this community was intended to have. Here's the point, is that the people were supposed to understand that it's not just on Saturday when I show up to temple, or for us on Sundays when I come to church, right? That's not the only time that my life is supposed to be holy. I don't come and clean up myself on Saturday night or Sunday morning just so that I can come to a space like this. And somehow that's a happy, functional, healthy, spiritual life. That's not. That's not. What God intends is for holiness to extend through all of your living and my living too. It is to touch every facet so that we understand the distinctive quality that God is making individually and then corporately. Leviticus is intending to create this new distinctive people by shaping into every aspect of their life. Not just about church, it's also about the marketplace and the factory floor. It's about living holy lives in your friendships and in your marriages and in your leisure time and in your finances. And shall I go on? It's about every factor and facet of your living. God calls you, if He's called you to Jesus, then He's called you to holy living. To live your life holy. Will there be disagreements and disruptions over time? Sure. Are we supposed to work to, to create and to, to not just minimize, but to work through and find healing? Of course we are. As long as it is up to you, move that way. It's not... Uh, holy living is as much what you do in the school lunchroom, students. It's as much what you do in the school lunchroom as what you might do downstairs in the fellowship hall at a church luncheon. Holiness is as much of what you do on Thursdays, adults, in your office, as much as it is on Sundays in this sanctuary. Holiness extends to every part of your life. Be holy because I am holy. Why? Here again is the missional quality ringing through again so that when people come and they see the interaction of the church body together, they see the gospel and they hear the message and they're invited into it as well. Here's our last point. So what is the key distinctive according to Peter? Well, it's love. It's love. The major distinction is love for one another. In verse 22, verse 22 it says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Some commentators, if, if you like English grammar and uh, Greek grammar and its roots, uh, you might be interested to know that uh, many commentators point to uh, the preposition here actually being for rather than so that. So hear it again with the preposition for. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth for love that is sincere for your brothers, go ahead and love one another deeply from the heart. In other words, some commentators would point to this passage saying that because you have been purified by your obedience to the Word, a byproduct of that is not love, 
That's the purpose of your purification. Your, the purpose of your being purified is for your ability now to love other people. Peter says that love is the distinctive, the key distinctive in all of our living as a body of believers together. So what does this kind of love look like? I'm really glad you asked. Chapter 2. We're, we're winding down. Or winding up, maybe. Chapter 2, he says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, there's a list of sins there. Malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Those are, you know, there's some sins that are kind of inward. They're sort of sins of thought, sins of intent. But there's also many sins that have import and impact into other people's lives. Some sins can't be committed without other people. But this particular group of sins is directly committed because there are other people in your life. And the sin is only there because of other people in your life. So I want to read that, those sins, envy, slander, hypocrisy, alongside verse 22. Hear it again. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, for sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Here's, here's the point, that instead of malice, we are to love one another deeply. That instead of deceit and hypocrisy, we are to have sincere love. Literally, the word is an unhypocritical type of love. Instead of envy and slander, we are to be people who love one another from the heart. That there's a depth and a quality and a character and a texture to the love that we have for each other. You see, Peter describes the identity of their his hearers that inevitably shapes the way that they engage their neighbors and their unchurched and unchristian, ungospel-oriented friends so that their engagement with those around them would be a gospel-centered. You see, at several key moments throughout the letter, he uses the word therefore. It's a lot, actually. Um, and it's, it's there's a transition point to, to move the readers and to move us from he's describing an identification. Here's who you are. Therefore, go and do this as a result. Here's who you are. Therefore, this is the consequence of the reality of this identity that you are. Here's one of them in verse 13. He's described them as, as being born into a new family, having a living hope and an enduring inheritance in chapter 1. He says then in verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given. He says again in chapter 2, verse 1, he's described this holy living. And he says, you are called to be holy because I am holy. Therefore, rid yourselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, which we've already talked about. Therefore, several other times he says the same thing in, the, the, in this letter. Therefore, your identity, because of this, now go and live this way. Because of this, you can't, you can no longer do other things. You must now, because you are this, you must live in this way. You must take on this identity of being a lover of your brothers and sisters in the church fellowship. It is important for our church, I believe, to expand the ways that we connect 
with unbelievers to continue to expand that so that through you and through the community gathered together, they might see the gospel, hear the gospel, right? The good news of Jesus, what God has done in Christ. They can see it in the way we love each other. And that what Jesus said, they will know you are my followers in the way that you love one another. They can see it. They can hear the message. What has God done in Jesus and why is it important to them? And they can be invited into the gospel. As we unfold this, we're going to be challenged to think about blending more and more our life together as believers with that of unbelievers. And I hope it's challenging to you. It is to me. That's part of what God's good spirit does when he infuses his word and mixes it into our hearts. And I pray that you continually blessed through this series. Father, we pray this day that you would be honored in, in the preaching of the word, the hearing of the word, and our response of your word. We thank you for this church and for its history. We thank you for the way that you have worked among men and women in this place for decades now. And for the way that uh, I believe that you're intending to work through us in the decades to come. And the ways and the opportunities, God, help us not to wring our hands about um, the cultural changes, even though we're not maybe not happy about those things, nor should we be about certain things. But yet there are continually increasing opportunities to speak the gospel into a heart and a mind that's never really heard the basic message of your love and what you've done in Jesus. There are opportunities around us for people to see, if we will practice it, that they can see that we love one another deeply from the heart. Help us to arrange our lives so that that can be known. Help us to arrange whatever structures in this church need to be arranged to help facilitate that. God, we want to be obedient individually. And we want to be obedient as a group together. Your family, your children, brothers and sisters together with a single father, you living God. So, help us now. We pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.